You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Usually we're a weekly podcast, but all throughout February we'll be dropping two episodes per week. In this episode, we'll be addressing a common misconception that farmers simply don't care about the environment. Our guest is Michael Guerin, who's the CEO of AgForce in Queensland. He's going to walk us through some of the ways that Aussie farmers are looking after their most precious resource, their land. G'day Michael, welcome to the show. Hello Daniel, Uh, pleasure to be with you. Yeah, no workers. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about AgForce and how you guys support the agricultural industry? Daniel, AgForce is a volunteer organisation that looks after, represents and advocates on behalf of primary producers across Queensland. We have in Australia and indeed in Queensland an industry we can be enormously proud of, one where whether it be environment or animal welfare or biosecurity, across many elements, we actually lead the world. We create export opportunities, we create jobs for regional communities, and we grow food and fibre as well as anywhere in the world, looking after environment and balance within that work. And AgForce is a voluntary organisation where producers of that food and fibre join the organisation and collectively build policy settings and positions, and we work with government and broader community in prosecuting against those policy positions, putting in place things that are important to ensure sustainable landscapes, putting in things that are important to ensure we can continue to grow in a sustainable way. And AgForce is a member of the National Farmers Federation. So we look after Queensland, and there are other producer bodies around Australia that look after different states and different parts of agriculture most of which also belong to the National Farmers Federation family. So why is this role important within the community, Michael? Daniel, we touched on it a little bit just then, but we have in Australia an industry that is the envy of a lot of the world. For example, we can go into, and we have been able to for at least two generations now, go into a supermarket anywhere in Australia, any day of the week, and buy quality fresh, locally grown produce, produce grown in a way that looks after the environment, that considers animal welfare carefully, and that's a privilege that a lot of the world doesn't have. So you travel around, for example, Asia, and go into the supermarkets in Asia, and they don't have that locally grown fresh produce in the same way that we do. They have a lot more packaged product, a lot more imported product, a lot more highly processed foods than we do. So we have a tremendous privilege in Australia in having such a powerful and strong industry that puts that food on our shelves every day. It also creates a lot of employment opportunities in regional Australia. It provides a strength that can look after the environment, et cetera, et cetera. But what we also find these days is that a larger percentage of the Australian population, and indeed the global population, are disconnected from where their food and fibre comes from. They don't have an uncle or auntie on the farm and visit the farm as regularly as perhaps the last generation did. So it's important that as well as running a really good industry we can be proud of, we tell our story. We connect to people that live in the cities and eat our food and use our fibre. 
we invite them into our journey and we give them confidence and pride that they can know that their agriculture industry in Australia not only produces that high quality food that a lot of the world doesn't have the privilege of having on their shelves every week, but that we do it in a way that cares for the environment, cares for animal welfare, and those other things that are important to us as a broader community. And I know we're going to touch on a little bit of that today in terms of how we do that, but we really do in Australia have a world-class industry that the broader Australian community can be immensely proud of and the globe can buy food from knowing that it's produced in an ethically ethical and sustainable way. Very important story to continue to tell, very important to stay connected to the wider community and doing is not good enough these days. You need to share that story and show that as well so that you have efficacy, so that people can have the confidence they need to buy that food and to promote and support the industry of agriculture. I couldn't agree anymore. So when we talk about the terms sustainability and regeneration, can you speak on what those terms mean? Daniel, I can, and and they're very um, self-explanatory in some ways, but sustainability is about this idea of being able to sustain an activity over time. So to hand our land on to the next generation in as good a form as we find it or, or better, to have sustainable ecosystems, for example, so we have that diversity in plant life, we can have confidence that our environments and our, and our landscapes can remain healthy. They sustain over time. And as we've grown up as a world and as we've agriculture has become more industrialised over the years, some of the things we've done haven't, with the benefit of hindsight and better science, been sustainable. So sustainability is all about practices and activities which we know we can sustain over time and we know we can sustain from all aspects, including looking after the environment, promoting better biodiversity, you know, looking after our soils, for example. All of those elements that are important that, they, that remain in place if the human race and indeed the planet can remain healthy, is to remain healthy, should I say, over time. And where we have done a little bit of damage over the years, and we have as we learn, not only in agriculture but elsewhere, regeneration is all about this idea that when we learn from good science and from practice that we've done some damage, regeneration is regenerating that land or those ecosystems to where they once were so we can underpin that sustainability. So where, for example, we might have taken you know, carbon out of a soil or removed a riparian strip, which is the strips alongside rivers and the water quality not be quite as good as what it was. We seek to regenerate that natural landscape so the water goes becomes clean again, so the soil becomes strong again and can hold carbon and can grow plants and sustain animals. So we regenerate that land so that it can remain sustainable over the generations. So sustainability is all about sustaining what we have and regeneration is all about recognising where we have done something in an unsustainable way and regenerating that back to a place where it can be sustainable uh, over time. Hmm. And that's very important, those concepts. And I think it's interesting how you've sort of said that, you know, we live and we learn and some of our forebears maybe sort of didn't have all of the information available to them, even though they, they obviously have been taking their land seriously because that is their livelihood and you know, what they sort of hope to pass down to their children a lot of the time. But can you speak on some of the ways that our forebears have maybe made some mistakes and how and what are some of the consequences for these actions? 
I certainly can, Daniel. And and the other interesting thing is we're not perfect today either, Daniel, and, and we will do mm. things that with the benefit of better science in two generations from now, they'll look back on and say that wasn't sustainable or that damaged some part of our ecosystem. And that's the beauty of science and continuous learning is, you know, making mistakes but learning from them and applying those learnings back. And that's an important journey we're on, we'll be on for many generations uh, to come. But in terms of what we know today about things that if we had our time again, we'd do differently, there are a large number of those across agriculture we can talk about. One of the really interesting ones I often talk to people about is the idea that in Australia in particular, and Australia is a unique landscape in the globe, uh, but in Australia, the land has been managed, and I'll come back to what I mean by that term, but the land has been managed for tens of thousands of years. When the, the Europeans first arrived, there was a lot of fires up and down the coast. And that was, as we now know, um, traditional owners or Aboriginal people using what they describe as cool burning to manage landscapes and allow regeneration, good environmental and biosecure, uh, and by, um, you know, good environmental, should I say, outcomes and um, you know, plants and animals mm. allowed to thrive in what's a really challenging environment uh, in Australia. And if we mm. look at the policy settings we've put in place in the last couple of hundred years as mechanised ways of agriculture have come into being, some of those haven't packed up those tens of thousands of years of learning and applied them straight back to change practices. We see things like, you know, the enormous bushfires that challenged Australia a year ago and the review process and going through and learning about what we can do better there. And part of it, not all of it, by certain by, by any stretch of the imagination, but part of that's about managing fuel loads, which is the dry material that collects in our bushland over time. And again, back to the learnings from the traditional owners over tens of thousands of years, they used to manage that through what they called cool burning, which was using mm. fire to manage that fuel load but burning at a time of year when the heat wouldn't get to the point of sterilising the soil below the fire. Burning at a time when the heat would allow that soil to remain healthy as the fire went across, to take away the fuel load and to allow the seeds underneath to germinate with that heat and to grow fresh uh, flora and fauna, um, grass, etc. very quickly behind it. And the landscape responded to that. Uh, it was a practice that lasted many, many years and looked after the environment. We don't do as much of that these days. In Queensland, for example, we have 13 unique bioregions. And just to pick on one, the Mulgolands out in the southwest. If you talk to traditional owners and Aboriginal people out there, they've spent tens of thousands of years managing that mulga. If you don't manage it, it thickens up to the point where we're native uh, animals and plants can't get through it, becomes tied up. The grass underneath can't get any sunlight and it dies and the landscapes start to suffer because of it. And as we've brought in mechanisation and fire isn't used anymore to manage the mulga lands, we haven't arguably managed those mulga lands as well as, we, as the Aboriginals did with fire beforehand. So there are a couple of examples, uh, Daniel. There's the traditional ones as well, like, you know, should we have knocked over a rainforest here or should we have planted uh, the land right up to the edge of the river when a little bit of a riparian strip or leaving the trees and the grass alongside the river would have allowed you know better water quality outcomes they're all examples as well but I'm always fascinated personally and when you talk to people that live in communities 
they always like to learn from what's gone before them. And we do have in Australia a landscape mm. that has been, as I said, managed for those tens of thousands of years. And I think in some cases we haven't used and, and taken that experience and knowledge as well as we could have forward over the last couple of hundred years. Mm. Absolutely agree. And another consequence, as you've been saying, you sort of talked about that biology, you know, that the the soil biology, how the fire doesn't quite get hot enough to sort of damage that ecology there when you're doing these smaller fires. What are some of the consequences of when we don't burn some of that kindling, I guess, on the floor and allow sort of larger bushfires to rage out of control? Yes, so um, soil is full of microorganisms. It's full of living creatures, you know, big and small. So earthworms and things we're very familiar with, right down to microorganisms. And a healthy soil structure will include all of that. It will be able to hold a large amount of water. It'll hold a lot of carbon. Carbon allows the soil to hold that water. Carbon provides food for, for, you know, for plants. It provides a richness in the soil. And for those listening who perhaps aren't so familiar with the land, you look at, for example, the potting mix you can buy in the store and compare that to some of that dry, sandy soil which doesn't have any life in it. And you can just hold one lot in each hand and, and think about what the potting mix could hold in terms of the amount of water you could pour in and it would hold it versus the, the drier, sandy soil in the other hand where it will hold no water. And it's an example of healthy soil versus unhealthy soil. And when you sterilise soil. In other words, a fire goes across with such extreme heat that it kills all those microorganisms, then that soil has no ability to hold that water, to hold that carbon and to provide that fuel and food for plants and support, you know, the regeneration of the, the landscapes that, that soil supports. So that soil biology is really, really important. And one of the early things in recognise um, agriculture in Australia where we were always tilling the land and they were just turning it over, ploughing it in. If you release a lot of that carbon, it makes it harder for some of the animals that live in the soil, like worms, to survive when, when their homes are essentially being turned over all the time. So holding that together is critical. It ensures we don't have that soil erosion and all those other benefits we've briefly touched on um, as we've talked about this question of yours to stay in place. But that soil biology is critically important. Soil is one of the biggest um, holders of carbon. And we talk about climate change. We talk about, you know, CO2 in the atmosphere. Some parts of agriculture put that carbon back in the soil, but it's a really important mechanism for managing and looking after carbon, which at the end of the day is critical for life itself, Daniel. Absolutely. And it's critical for life itself. And it's also critical for farmers to be able to have that resource in a long-term sort of a way so that they can actually make money off of that land? Absolutely. If, if farmers, if the soil's not healthy, farmers can't produce the food that we take for granted and sits in our supermarket shelves every week. So not only is looking after the landscapes and our soils and our fauna and our flora critical for the environment, it's critical for life itself in terms of the, the human population and having that food on our, cell, on our shelves, should I say. So there are many benefits of looking after our soils and looking after our landscapes, and we're learning and getting better at that all of the time. And again, as I touched on at the start, agriculture in Australia leads the world in a lot of these aspects. We can be incredibly proud of it and what we do. The way we work 
alongside and with the best scientists in the world. And we have some of the best research and scientific facilities and universities in Australia of anywhere in the world. So we're always changing our agricultural practices. And one of the real focuses around that um, within this broader idea of sustainable landscapes and looking after the environment is the idea of looking after our soils, of our soil biology, of the importance of that, as you said, not only for the environment, but for economic return and for producing food. So there are many reasons to look after the environment, no reasons not to look after it. Mm -hmm. And the industry wants to be sustainable. Communities want to leave their farms and their landscapes in better shape than they found them. And that sustainability and that regeneration we touched on earlier are really, really important parts of that. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't really make much sense that farmers wouldn't care about the environment and their soil if you actually sort of stop and think about it, as you've said. Not at all. So we've talked about some of the forms of soil degradation here. We've sort of talked about uncontrolled fires. We've talked about ripping, you know. Are there any other sort of forms of soil degradation that have affected Aussie agriculture? There are a number of which we've touched on two of them main ones but but essentially allowing the soil to hold carbon allowing the microbes and the microorganisms to live in comfort and you know stopping erosion recognizing the natural state uh, all, all important elements I, I guess and i'm not sure whether you were going to ask a specific question on it but one of the biggest breakthroughs in agriculture was this idea of no-till farming which came along about 20 years ago and that's a great example of of one of the ways we can degrade soil but equally one of the ways we can restore or regenerate soils and that is that for those of us who are old enough if you remember 20 years ago across the wheat belt and wherever we grew crops across Australia when the crop was harvested the tractors would go across the landscape several times and they would plough it back up and prepare the soil bed put some fresh seeds in and grow a, a new crop and if you remember, for those in the audience listening from the cities, if you remember driving along, you see the big dust clouds that, that flying along behind the tractors. What that was, was that was topsoil getting blown away as you disturb the soil. And topsoil is where all of the goodness is for the plants and the plant roots to find their food and to grow from. And if you lose a little bit of that each year because you're turning it over constantly, not only do you make it hard for the microorganisms to live in there because you're always turning their home over, you're also losing part of that topsoil. So it will only be so many years before you run out of that rich topsoil needed to grow um, plants. So about 20 years ago, agriculture came up with this idea alongside the scientific community of no-till farming, which is where you don't disturb that soil. So you run past once with a tractor and put the seed in the soil, and then you run back past one more time when you harvest the plant, but you don't disturb the soil. So the technology now where you can put seed in the ground without having to churn up the soil and create a seed bed like you used to. Um, you see a lot of stubble now. So if you drive past wheat farms post-harvest, then the bottom little bit of the plant remains there. And that stubble protects from the soil being washed away by a big rain event, for example. Um, so all of those different technologies, therefore, support that soil and holding the integrity of that soil. And to your question, all of those older mechanical ways of, of growing and harvesting crops were a form of soil degradation, we now know. Losing that topsoil 
constantly turning it over, which means the carbon escapes into the atmosphere that it was holding, uh, meaning that those microorganisms can't live as well as they would otherwise live uh, in that soil. But the no-till being one of those great breakthroughs, which means we can now be rebuilding that soil health while growing um, crops and feeding Australians. Absolutely. And when we talk about sort of good soil management practices, we can also sort of talk about other things like, you know, maybe we could talk about crop rotations and things like that. Are the same practices used on all farms in all parts of Australia? No. We touched on earlier the idea of different bioregions. And in the case of Queensland, for example, we have 13 unique bioregions. Some of those bioregions have landscapes that are able to be used for growing crops. Other bioregions are not. And in Queensland, about 84% of the landmass simply used for grazing. There have never never been any farming or growing crops across those bioregions or those landscapes. And the reason for that is those landscapes and those bioregions don't lend themselves to growing crops. We don't have, for example, sufficient richness in the soils. You know, it might be volcanic and rocky. Um, There are many reasons why it's not suitable. And again, you know, one of the things about Australian agriculture is then you can either leave those landscapes you know, national parks, etc. In a lot of cases, you can use them for grazing. And grazing, the grazing industry in Australia is an enormous industry that grows a huge amount of world-class beef and lamb and other red meats. And the really interesting thing about that from an environmental perspective is that that is actually good for the environment and a net carbon sequester. So we talk about carbon emissions in farming. We talk about that as it relates to the climate and the obligations we all have to think about less emission-intensive industries. In the grazing industry, which again is across around 84% of the Queensland landscape, we have what's called a ruminant animal, which is like a cow or a sheep. These are animals where the ruminant is all about them having multiple stomachs, and they will eat plants and material that you and I can't eat and no one else can eat, and then turn that into meat or through effluent, into carbon back into the soil. So they're actually taking material that sits across a crop and turning it into carbon and putting that back into the soil. And that makes the soil richer. It sequesters carbon. So you're providing good outcomes for the environment as well as producing top quality red meat. So to your question, Damien, there, we don't do things the same way everywhere across Australia. We do them multiple different ways. And it starts with understanding what's best for the landscape what's best for the environment alongside the production ability, and then putting in place the farming practices and producing what you can given what those landscapes are. And in Queensland, there are 13 unique bioregions. Uh, again, for those who live in the city, you know, if you go and spend some time in the country on holiday, for example, and now we're in a COVID world, you know, perhaps you can't go overseas, you know, grab the children, go out into regional Australia. Not only will you meet some wonderful and warm people who want to show you around there, community and tell you their story but you'll drive through different bioregions where there are completely different practices in terms of farming in terms of what they grow in terms of how they do it etc and it's a really rich thing to see for those who are not aware of it but there are multiple ways we farm and produce food across australia depending on uh, the climate and the bioregion etc absolutely my parents have a sort of a small property where they graze cattle and they've had a real problem with lantana on their property. 
And because they sort of take a lot of pride in their land and they want it to be productive and they also really care about the ecosystem, they've been able to control that lantana weed on their property. And it's actually quite a contrast to see the national park behind them, which is actually completely infested with lantana. Daniel, that's absolutely right. And that comes back to the conversation we were having earlier about Australia having been a managed landscape for tens of thousands of years. And that's a really important concept and thing to talk about with the broader community, that if you lock up land and just leave it, then it will often be infested and taken over by weeds like lantana, by feral pests that destroy native wildlife and cause enormous damage. So there's an obligation on community and an obligation certainly on producers of food and fibre to manage their landscapes in a way that looks after and enhances the environment. And we have a, an ongoing conversation, we're having an ongoing conversation, should I say, with government uh, and those who look after the national parks and the state forests to say, as we learn, as science teaches us better ways of doing things, we need to apply that back. And if we see infestations of weeds in state forests and national parks, then there's no better use of public money and looking after the environment in a way that allows native plants and animals to grow and thrive and all the other associated benefits we've touched on today. We talked very briefly earlier about some of the devastating bushfires from last year and there are, there are many lessons to be learnt from that and I don't pretend to know them all or for us to have time to talk about them all today. But, you know, again, looking after fuel loads, thinking about west uh, pests, and weeds and national parks, all important elements looking after those landscapes in the same way as we need to and should and do look after them on privately owned landscapes like farms. Completely agree. When we talk about plants, you know, plants are not plants are not plants, and that's obvious, but do different plants have a different effect sort of on the land and on the soil, whether we're talking about weeds or whether we're talking about crops? They certainly do. So. We talk about in agriculture about crop rotation. Again, for those listening from the cities, that is rotating what you grow in the land. So one year you might grow a wheat crop, the next year you might grow a, a lucerne crop, for example. And the reason we do that is, is that diversity, like in so many ways elsewhere, is important in looking after managing landscapes. Some plants put more carbon back into the soil. So, for example, they are much more deeply rooted. So they put down a very deep tap root, for example, which is a root that goes straight down. When you harvest the top of that plant, that root remains in the soil and slowly decomposes to create carbon. You have other plants that do different things to the soil. And if you just continue to grow one crop all of the time, then you start to degrade the soil because not only do you not give that diversity to the soil, but different plants take different things from the soil as well. So you start to deplete the soil significantly, one element, one trace element, for example, but you don't balance that out. We also talk in farming about things called cover crops, which is where you want to give the land a complete break. So you might have grown two, for example, sugar crops, sugarcane crops. Then you might plant something completely different and then you might just roll that back in. So allow the plant to grow and then just to squash it with a roller. And what that does is put down different roots that again decompose and turn into carbon. But you also put a protective layer across the top of the soil when you roll those plants back across the landscapes. You can then, using today's technology, plant 
a wheat crop, for example, directly through what's lying across the top of the land, which is a cover. And that cover means that that soil holds moisture better. So if there's a rain shower goes through, that water remains in the soil because the cover crop provides that cover across the top of the soil while the young plants are coming through. So there's a, and so I've, I've only talked about it very briefly at a, at a very high level, but there's a real science to thinking about crop rotation, to thinking about what different plants do for soil health and the importance of that in sustainability and in building soil health and in handing over our property to the next generation in better shape than we found it, which, as we've talked about at the start, is critical not only for economic value out of farming, but also for for the environment itself and for human survival over time, looking after that environment and the planet in a way where it, you know, it is held in a way that's sustainable and can look after future generations, can look after good biodiversity, etc. Mm, completely agree. So, Michael, can you tell me how hard do farmers work to keep their businesses going and livestock alive in times of drought in Australia? Because we live in a country that does have to deal with serious droughts. We, we do. And I haven't met a farmer yet who doesn't care deeply for their livestock, who takes a personal interest in recognising that these are living creatures who have feelings and, like all of us, you know, in a, in a drought struggle. And if they haven't got food in front of them and water, and water and shade being critical for animals in drought and in heat times, then, you know, they will suffer. And farmers care deeply about ensuring that's not the case. And Daniel, you know, there have been pictures put out on the TV of animals that haven't been well looked after in drought. And we would have to acknowledge as an industry, there's the occasional person who doesn't respect welfare for animals. But I can also give everybody some absolute confidence that 99.9% of the industry care deeply about their animals. And in Australia, where we do have frequent droughts, we also have frequent floods. It's a, it's a real diversity of, of climatic conditions through the years and through the cycles that we put an enormous effort into looking after animals and their, and their landscapes through those cycles. In Queensland, we've just had a drought in some areas for up to eight years. Incredibly challenging for continuing to have a farm operate and for looking after animals. And, you know, at a high level, again, in times of drought, you either have to have the food, the water, and the shade in front of the animal and available to the animal, or you need to sell the animal. And that's, in very simplistic terms, what happens. There is a, a business cycle approach to managing floods and droughts, which is probably more advanced in Australia than in, in many parts of the world because we do have those extremes and climatic conditions that other countries don't have. And what it essentially is, and what a lot of producers do in looking after animals through droughts and floods, etc., is recognising that it's a cycle. So we have our dry years, we have our wet years, and we have our so-called normal years. And there's a a seven-year cycle or a 10-year cycle, but, you know, there is a cycle. And so what you do is in in the good years, when you've got lots of rain and you're growing lots of food, is you prepare for the dry years. So you grow hay, for example. So if you have surplus grass, then you make hay. And hay is, you know, dry grass essentially bundled up in a way where the value of that grass in terms of the nutrients for the animals are largely maintained and you put that in the hay shed. And then in the drier times, you have that feed to give give back to the animals. You ensure that you store water where you can. So you have a good water system where you have water troughs 
um, you have dams, etc., and you store water. Shade's important for animals. So sufficient shade. Some animals need more shade than others. So in the good times, you do all the preparation that you can. But when the dry times come, there's only so long that can last. There's only so long the hay and the sheep, for example, can last. And at the end of that, farmers will make a decision. You know, they can buy hay from elsewhere if they can afford to do it and they see the rain coming. Uh, or they can destock, which is to sell the animals to another farmer or off to market and leave that landscape resting. And then the landscape will rest until the rain comes along. And one of the big things we've learned over the last few years with the research and scientific community, which is now applied back uh, onto the landscapes, is it's really important to leave a cover of grass on your land when it gets dry. And the reason for that is if you eat all of the grass off the land and it's bare, so just bare ground, not only has the soil got no protection from the sun, so the, the microorganisms, etc., in the soil are exposed to that extreme heat, but when the rain arrives, it runs across the soil rather than sinking in. As you can imagine, if you have a bare, hard surface, then the water is more likely to run off. and that So therefore, you don't have the water sinking into the soil, and you might have erosion. Where there's enough of that water running off, it'll take some of the topsoil with it. Whereas if you have the grass still there, then the rain lands on the grass, and it runs down through the grass, and it sinks into the soil. So all of that learning is applied to managing the cycles in Australia to ensuring that in the dry times the animals are looked after, that we prepare for that drought, that we keep that grass cover across our landscapes, that we put in place mitigation strategies of selling animals, of having hay in the shed, of being able to buy in supplements, etc. But every farm you'll find will have a plan, will make the most of the good years, will manage their way through floods and droughts by preparing for those, knowing that they will come. We've got hundreds of years of data now. We know there will be another drought. We just don't know exactly when. We know there'll be another flood. We just don't know exactly when. But we have an industry in Australia that's become very good at understanding what the challenges are when those times come and preparing better for it. One of the important bits being preparing to ensure good animal welfare outcomes through those events. So again, we can stand proud and talk about our industry and talk about animal welfare being a really, really important part of that industry. Mm, absolutely. Where can farmers educate themselves formally and informally on best practices to use their precious resource, which is the earth? There are multiple places producers can go to learn more about this precious resource called earth. We touched on it briefly earlier, but one thing that we have the tremendous privilege of in Australia is a very powerful university sector or higher education sector. We have many universities. Uh, world-class universities, you know, through formal rankings, acknowledged as such. Uh, many of those universities have a focus on agriculture, on climate, on environment, and increasingly so. And to have an industry, uh, to have that, you know, learning ability and to have that open to producers and communities to engage with and learn from, both formally and, and other ways, uh, is the first part of it. And we find as the next generation takes over in the game of, of agriculture, as younger people come on, they are more formally qualified than the last generation. So they a bigger percentage of them get formal qualifications before they come back to the land. That's both, you know, generic qualifications like degrees in science and, and et cetera, and more specific ones like um, diplomas in agriculture and 
you know, degrees and higher qualifications and specific elements uh, of agriculture. So that's all there. And also for the younger generation and even those in the cities that are wanting to think about agriculture, there is a much broader range of career options and of learning opportunities than there traditionally have been. So these days, you know, um, drones, technology, genetics, um, supply chains, there are an enormous number of careers which weren't traditionally there in the same way that are there now. So you can join the industry or be a part of the industry or have a career in the industry without necessarily taking on traditional roles like growing the animals or looking after landscapes. So that formal piece is there for farmers and communities. There's also through organisations such as AgForce, but many others as well, natural resource management, uh, networks, etc., etc., an ongoing opportunity for workshops. There are many, many workshops being run at any one time across regional Australia. You can go on to places like the AgForce site and see what's available and go to those. And indeed, we're getting a stronger and stronger participation in those. And that's this continuous learning piece. So whether it be you know, things around the environment, et cetera, we've talked about today, whether it's more um, fundamental things like workplace health and safety, changing industrial laws, et cetera, there's an enormous amount of support available for producers through those informal ongoing mechanisms, which you know, can be used and are useful for just a day off the property, refreshing yourself about something. There's also a good social element of that, of learning from each other, experiential learning, they call it, where you just talk to fellow producers about how they're dealing with specific issues. So that's, I guess, the formal and, and the informal at, at a high level. Uh, Daniel, also, these days, and, and I'm struggling to keep up, which I guess is showing my age, there are more and more online forums for learning, whether it be podcasts like we're attempting to put together today, and this is my first one of these, whether it be just being online, Zoom meetings, etc. And I guess the last piece to mention, just at a broad level, um, is all the support services put in place by government. Government are an incredibly important partner um, to industry and, you know, in a democratic system set up to, to use the public purse to provide benefit back. And they do an enormous amount of extension work. So training through extension. Department of Agriculture and Fisheries or DAF in most states do an enormous amount of that extension work as they do federally. So those are three good places to start, uh, Daniel, but it is rich with resources to enable producers and other people who want to join the industry or upskill themselves in the industry to go and find learning opportunities, whether it be across you know, soils and environment as we've talked about today or other aspects uh, of agriculture. So, Michael, what is something that most people, especially those of us that live in the city, what do we not understand about agricultural sustainability and land regeneration? Daniel, that's a, a really good question. And we know through survey work that over 80% of our children now that live in urban environments have no idea um, how the food gets into the supermarket. No idea how that milk gets there. No idea that it comes from an animal, that comes from a dairy cow or, or other animals and how that's done. So it's really important that as a broader community, we understand the industry, we understand where food and fibre comes from, and we are part of the conversation of challenging the industry where we as a, an urbanite feel like the industry might be doing the wrong thing by animals, if you feel that, challenge it, engage with industry, come out and talk to us. Um, give yourself confidence and comfort that the industry is one you can be proud of. Don't take as gospel what you might hear from somebody. Come and check it out for yourself. 
If you don't know a farmer, ring up somebody like Agforce or National Farmers Federation. Because what you will find, Daniel, in 99.9% of cases, and there's always there's always somebody doing something bad, Daniel, in all walks of life, not only in agriculture, but 99.9% mm-hmm. of farmers of rural communities uh, and of agriculture are working every day and all day to build better environmental outcomes, to care for their animals, to apply good science back. And to me, that's the thing that is least understood with some of the the rhetoric I hear in the cities and with some of the assumptions people make about agriculture. We do have an industry we can be tremendously proud of. Not all the world has that. We have an industry that produces about three times as much food as we need in Australia, so we also can earn export revenue from exporting that food to other countries not as lucky as us. In terms of practical things, Daniel, I suppose, down from that high-level sort of answer, and we touched on this earlier, things like grazing, the grazing industry, is a net sequester of carbon. In other words, every time we grow, for example, a cattle beast, which ends up as steaks and beautiful red meat in our supermarket shelves, we're actually doing the environment a service by putting carbon into the soil, by using ruminant animals to protect the landscape. So cattle grazing, for example, is not something that degrades the environment, actually quite the opposite. And ruminant animals, whether they be cows or sheep or, or others, native animals, have looked after and, and been part of the solution for sequestering carbon and looking after environments for many, many, many years uh, and will be going forward. So I, and I guess it's slightly aligned to this question, I'm often amused by the debate about whether we should all become, you know, as a community, eating other than meat, so plant-based in our diets. And we see a lot of science talking about the health benefits um, of that, um, and I'm no expert for that. And and people can choose their diets, and they're free to do so in a democratic world. But I can say with confidence, Daniel, that for those who choose a meat-based diet, you are not eating a product that damages the environment. You're eating one that supports good environmental outcomes as you are with many other diets like plant-based diets. So choosing your diet is a personal choice, but you don't need to choose it thinking that, for example, meat is worse for the environment, so therefore what I can do for the environment is to eat a plant-based diet and that will help the environment. That's actually not the case, Daniel. But back to what I said at the start, please come out and visit us. You know, Talk to AgForce, talk to other agricultural groups if you have a curiosity and you want to challenge the industry if you've heard something that concerns you. And that way, as a broader community, we can learn together, we can challenge each other. But again, as I said at the start, we can be tremendously proud of the agriculture industry that we have in Australia. And Michael, I think that's beautiful what you've been saying. I do know that there are going to be a lot of people who don't agree with what you've just said, and they're probably sitting with their headphones in right now fuming. And I would like to leave a link in the show notes for people to respectfully communicate with you and sort of you know, I'm sure that they want to get their point across and they probably want to hear your point across as well. And I encourage our listeners to definitely reach out and communicate this as long as you can be respectful. Yep. And thank you, Daniel. And I welcome that as well. And the industry welcomes that and producers welcome that as well. We, we don't have all the answers, but we we do care deeply for the environment. We're very proud of what we do do. And, you know, we are prepared to be challenged and to challenge to have fierce conversations for the benefit of better outcomes because we don't have 
you know, we, we're continuing to learn and we will do for many generations, probably forever uh, to come. So people do have different views. We live in a free country. We live in a democracy. We probably take a lot of things for granted that some of the world don't have. But let's use that free speech, that democracy, our scientific institutions and the spirit of goodwill we have in most Australians to have those conversations and to continue to challenge each other and therefore be able to confidently tell each other stories and back each other up. So, Daniel, I, I welcome that interaction and, and I thank you for the way uh, you framed it. Hmm. And I, I also do want to have opposite points of view on this show as well. So it's not that we're trying to block out the opposite point of view either. That's um, I think yeah. that having you know, both sides of an argument um, on the same show is something very valuable and it, and it is rare in this day and age. So it's not yeah. that we're trying to shut anyone out at all. Is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about, Michael? Well, you know, I think I've attempted to get my points across within the questions. I guess the, the thing I wanted to emphasise the most is this idea that we can be incredibly proud of our industry in Australia and that we do have something that's the envy of much of the world. You know, we can go into the supermarket any day of the week, any months of the year, and in any year, and not only get food and fibre that's produced locally in a sustainable way and in a way that looks after animal welfare, etc., but also we can buy food that's locally grown that's incredibly healthy for us as human beings. So as a parent, being able to do that with your children as, a, as an adult, being able to do that with the elderly parents, knowing you're putting healthy, locally grown food into your family and knowing that you can proudly stand behind the industry, knowing that it's been produced in an environmentally friendly way, looking after animal welfare, is something that is not the case in a large part of the world. So we can be tremendously proud of that. And we can also think about this idea of using that strength we have to educate and bring the industry along globally. So not only is that an export opportunity in terms of training, but we can have an enormous impact on the environment, on animal welfare more broadly uh, in the world. And, and for those of us who care about the planet, you know, they are things that we can do. I often use the example of the live export industry. And in places like Indonesia, the live export industry for the time being is really important. And that's because they can't produce the animals locally and they don't have the cold chain infrastructure in place to be able to store processed red meat locally. So if they don't buy their live animals from Australia, they'll buy them from somewhere else. And I know, again, there's a little bit of controversy about the live export trade, but one thing I can absolutely assure you, Daniel, is that the live export trade out of Australia is world-class in terms of animal welfare. We have a mortality rate on boats, which is less than the mortality rate in the paddock and less than mortality rate in the wild. So animals are actually, by definition, safer on a boat in, from, in terms of mortality than they are in a national park, for example. So by live exporting, we're influencing lifting animal welfare standards. By withdrawing from that, we allow other countries that aren't as good at animal welfare to take that slot. So in other words, animal welfare outcomes globally go backwards by doing that. So sometimes unintended consequences of, of taking a position on an industry without understanding all of those facts, the unintended consequences can be sadly detrimental to things like animal welfare. So we do have an industry we can be incredibly proud of across a number of it, large number of elements, some of which we've touched on today. Uh, we can lead the world. We can influence stronger outcomes for animals and environments globally, as well as in Australia. But 
we can walk into a supermarket with confidence that what we're buying is grown locally and grown with animal welfare and environment front of mind for those that produce the food, Daniel. And that's the message I really wanted to get across today and to invite the broader community to come and challenge that, to come and visit us and to check that out or to talk about that if they have any doubts about that or would welcome a conversation for helping them understand better what we do and how we do it. Michael, thank you for your time and your expertise. We really appreciate it here at the Plants Grow Here podcast. No problems, Daniel. Thank you for the interest. In episode one of this podcast, titled Our Mission, I stated that we were looking for contrasting opinions to build a wider understanding. If you're a vegan farmer, we'd love to have you on the show to give a different perspective. We are a horticultural podcast, not a culinary one, so we are looking for people who can speak about cultivating plants. I've dropped a couple of links in the show notes to resources that make some pretty good points indicating that farming ruminant animals are good for the environment and they're also good for human health. We're doing two episodes per week in February, so don't miss any of our new content. But by the same token, don't forget to go through our back catalogue either.